pursuit vehicles, the deficit mounts, and now, sir, you have us stuck in a quagmire. Hey, Joe! Boss! Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where we always exercise caution to protect the assets in Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 67, which begins with the People Eater finishing his accounting, and it ends with the Bullet Farmer, who come from the Bullet Farm, loading one of his bullet teeth into his revolver. Joining us this week to answer the call to the torture are Jonathan Carlyle and David Johnson from the UHF 62nd Podcast. Hello. Witness. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, gentlemen, to the wasteland. Now, we are recording this back in April, but the episode is coming out in August. Where are we at with the UHF 62nd podcast? Because <laughs> it is a project that has been a long time gestating and growing, and I'm just wondering at what stage are we still larval? Are we? Have we gone on to pupate stages? Have we... Sprouted wings. How are we doing with that? Oof, uh, these, these are some hard-hitting questions that I, I personally was not prepared for. What we like to do over at UHF 62nd is we like to record and then wait and age age the recordings in barrels. And we, we're still checking on them and seeing, you know, they, I don't know if they've uh, hit that sweet spot yet so that we can edit them. So they're still aging in barrels. The recordings. <laughs> okay. You might say that by August, uh, we are still awaited. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I appreciate the devotion to the branding that we're working with today. <laughs> I can almost imagine one of you walking through a gigantic warehouse barn filled with barrels that are just burned into the side with episode numbers. <laughs> like this is minute zero to one minute, two seconds type of thing. Because it is... 62 seconds at a time indeed that's actually exactly what it looks like if you see like neo season in, in uh, the matrix but so if you're neo looking you're seeing like digital uh barrels that's what it looks like yeah this ain't your daddy's minute by minute <laughs> podcast indeed but speaking of meticulous counting we pick up today with the people leader and when we ended on friday he was talking about oh you know we're down thirty thousand units of guzzling and we've got 19 canisters of nitro and he goes from liquid resources to more physical resources at the start of today's minute saying that they've lost 12 assault bikes seven pursuit vehicles and the deficit is mounting now i'd like to think that we've been paying pretty close attention to this movie and i don't feel like we've actually lost 12 assault bikes and seven pursuit vehicles. That seems a little high to me. Is he counting all of them? Like even the, the attacking ones? Although I don't know that they've received any attacking motorcycles yet. I think there are probably some vehicles that we did not see get lost in the storm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a good point. So I did not go back and count what we witnessed being lost. But whatever it is... I'm sure more was lost in the storm that we did not see. It's a very good point. So I actually did go back. Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay. I can always count on you to count. <laughs> to count on vehicles. Yeah. 
The Mad Math Minute. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> so, first and foremost, I feel like the losses that they've accrued so far can really be blamed on the buzzards and the toxic storm, and not so much on Max and Furiosa, because there hasn't really been a lot of combat interactions between the war parties and the war rig right now. So, a little bit of misplaced aggression, first and foremost, but going into the actual numbers, from what we saw, they lost two pursuit vehicles and two motorcycles because those were the vehicles that were originally following Furiosa and were taken out by the buzzards. They lost the Nux car, one more motorcycle, and that Monaro full of flamer heads that just couldn't use a flamethrower the right way and then got sucked up into the tornado. <laughs> then we lost maybe... One car and one motorcycle when all the rocks were falling down in the canyon. So that's another couple there. Then, of course, we lost the Bigfoot. And there was that motorcycle that the two war boys were riding when Furiosa picked him off. Yeah, that motorcycle. I've kind of been wondering about that motorcycle. It was prime for just pick it up and take it with you. Yeah. So either our group in the rig could have done that or the... War party, as they came across it, could have just tossed it up in the back of a truck. So really, it doesn't even count as a loss. So that might not be included in that number. Oh, people eater. And <laughs> notice the people eater. Did he count people? Oh, no. No. And one thing that he may or may not be including in his count are the two pursuit vehicles that got caught up in Max's booby trap. The two that exploded and caused everybody else to stop. Mm. Going by those numbers, we're looking at eight cars, five bikes. Four if you don't count the one where the two guys were shot off and they could just pick it up and keep going with it. Okay. But yeah, nowhere near as many as 12 and 7. So there must have been some people that just conveniently got lost in the storm. Maybe uh, People Eater is from Gastown, right? Yes. Maybe when they left Gastown because we didn't see that. Maybe like they all crammed in at the door and only a few of them made it through. <laughs> He's already counting those. People Eater is the exact sort of person who would count the losses that they sustained getting to the canyon. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even consider that. <laughs> now, do we know, do we have any proof that People Eater is actually good at, you know, I wonder if there are like two separate sets of books. Like he's always doing, you know, doing the math. Well, I'm going to count it, but there's actually another guy. His number two guy has got a second set of books that actually makes sense. Like People Eater doesn't. His math doesn't make any sense. He doesn't know what he's doing. He just, everybody lets him pretend because he's in charge. <laughs> he's not actually good at math. <laughs> he's got a book that he puts numbers in and he thinks he's yeah. this great accountant. And there's an imperator behind him being like, no, actually, yeah. you carry the two. Yep. He's got like the last solar powered calculator. He's actually doing real math. <laughs> well, he has a little counting machine hung from his jacket, sort of. Like a pocket watch almost. Mm -hmm. Took me a while to notice, but it's not hanging from his jacket. There are holes cut in his jacket. Oh, yeah, that's... And they're hanging from his nipples. That yeah. is one of the most disturbing parts of the People Eater's costume is... I never noticed that till, like, just now. <sighs> wow. Yeah, no, I, I noticed that the first time I watched the movie. Like, that's... <laughs> yeah, and you kind of can't take disturbing. your eyes off of it. My problem with that is... Like I wear earbuds a lot and I'm always getting them caught on stuff. Like how, how does, how are his nipples still intact even? Yeah. I find this rather dubious. He probably doesn't move around that much. I know at least not uh, on his yeah, own, I but he does. I mean, you just lean over to grab something and then get it caught on the countertop as you go back up and oh, can't even imagine. 
<laughs> and he cut holes in a perfectly nice vest. Yeah. For this aesthetic accoutrement. Well, I'm glad that we don't get the most disturbing minutes with those, because later on he... There's a reason why they, they, they are exposed, I guess, I should say. Yeah, <laughs> easy access, as they mm -hmm. say. That is pretty far down the line. We definitely don't need to worry about that. <laughs> I'm going to pretend good, good, I good. don't know. So you would rather be pleasantly surprised by it in the future? There are enough disturbing things in this week that I don't need to think too much about his nipples. <laughs> no. Okay, well, instead of focusing on the nipples, let's focus on the man behind the character, which... <sighs> You just said the man behind the nipples. <laughs> okay. The man behind the nipples, as you suggest. The People Eater is played by John Howard. Usually we introduce characters when they first start talking, but this is the end of his line that started last Friday. So, you know, we're just going loosey-goosey at this point. Anyway, he's played by John Howard. His top four on IMDb include this movie, his run on the television show, Sea Change between 1998 and 2019 as Bob Jelly. His run on All Saints between 2001 and 2009 where he played Dr. Frank Campion slash Jonathan Healy. And his 2006 role in Jindabyne where he played Carl. And I definitely said that wrong because I said it with kind of a southern twang which is definitely not how they say it in Australia. But anyway, I digress. John Howard was born October 22nd, 1952, in Koroa, New South Wales, Australia. Howard grew up in Warawee, New South Wales, and went to Knox Grammar School. He dropped out of medicine and law at university and graduated in 1978 from NIDA, alongside All Saints co-star Penny Cook and Mad Max alumni Robert Grubb. Aside from appearances in movies and television shows, Howard also played leading roles from 1981 to 2012 in various plays. He won a Critics Circle Award in 1992 for his role in The Crucible and in The Mongrels. He has twice been honored as Variety Entertainer of the Year in 1992 and in 2006. And he was nominated for an AFI Award for Joe's Fury and nine times for other projects. He has a Silver Logie Award for his role in Sea Change. For three years, between 1992 and 1995, Howard was the associate director of the Sydney Theatre Company and launched the Australian People's Com and launched the Australian People's Theatre, which is associated with the Sydney Theatre Company. He has two children, a son and a daughter, from two different marriages. Howard is also a recognized ambassador for Variety, which is a children's charity, and the Australian Mitochondrial Disease Foundation. Listeners will no doubt recognize John Howard as the horse thief. Sly from 1983's Bush Christmas, where he and John Ewart, who was playing Bill, stole a horse from Nicole Kidman, Mr. Skyfish, and Tubba Tintai. Really? No Pe doubt recognized? People are going to hear John Howard and they're going to say, that's the guy from Bush Christmas. Okay. I'd recognize that name anywhere. I gotta go find a picture of him from Bush Christmas because I did not make that connection. He's the one that's not tall and skinny. <laughs> right. <laughs> He's, he's not the Bruce Campbell knockoff. Right. <laughs> that leads me to a question, though, because I was looking at pictures of Howard, and he he doesn't look quite as large as he is in the movie. So are those Howard's nipples, or is he wearing, like, obviously his feet uh, have uh, prosthetics on them, but is, is he wearing, like, a full-on fat suit? How much of Howard is Howard? How much of People Eater is People Eater? I really hope he's wearing a fat suit. <laughs> I want those to be stunt nipples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can bet that 
He's probably wearing a torso prosthetic. He's definitely wearing a foot prosthetic because... For sure. Of course. <laughs> you could definitely look at him and be like, okay, the bald and jowly look isn't necessarily a good one for him. So he might actually be wearing a couple of face prosthetics as well. But then again, I'm not quite sure where his picture on IMDb is necessarily coming from year-wise. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, he's quite the character the people eater is well i guess that's an ode to the character design and the makeup and the costuming that we're not really sure how much of it is people eater and how much of it is howard so that's you know that's a good thing in my book where the character ends and where the actor begins yeah so he continues berating joe and he says and now sir you have us stuck in a quagmire and i love this line because it works on multiple levels because not only is a quagmire a soft, boggy area of land that gives away underfoot? It's also an awkward, complex, or hazarded situation, which I believe both of those describe what we're in. Very true. I love the reading of that line. I don't understand every word of that, but when he gets to the end and just that quagmire, I love it. And I love how you have all of these war boys and they are struggling to get these vehicles moving again, and they're trying so hard. And they're putting so much effort into it. And Joe could not care one bit that they're doing any of this because his focus is squarely inside the Giga Horse. Maybe they can move the vehicles, you know, or they can move them to a bit, but they're struggling so hard because they're just like, you know, witness me, witness how hard I'm struggling. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just not looking. He doesn't care. So inside the Giga Horse, we've got the organic mechanic and he is keeping a close eye on Angherid's body here. He shouts out one phrase in particular, saying, Your girlie's breathing her last. And so it would seem that Angherid did not necessarily die when she fell off the rig. She's just been unconscious from hitting the ground at high speed and then sort of being rolled over. Like, I guess, technically ran over in quotations. Yeah, it's really questionable what injuries she actually sustained in the accident. It looks to me like they were purely internal injuries. I don't think she actually got ran over. If she did, there'd be broken limbs and blood and dirt everywhere. So I'm guessing she's dying slowly of internal bleeding. Something I noticed about this scene, when the, the organic mechanic, he looks confused that Angherit is dying. She's like, yeah, she's breathing her last with this super confused look on his face. Like, I don't know why, but this is happening. That uh, leads me to ask, you know, where did the organic mechanic, uh, they're not calling him doctor. They're calling him organic mechanic, but surely he had some kind of a, how much training do we think that he has? You know, where do we think he got his knowledge? How deep does his knowledge run? So many questions. Well, I doubt he has any formal training at all. I think that, like mechanics, some mechanics go to school, get a formal education in what goes on under the hood and how to fix it. Sure. And then some mechanics just kind of learn on the job. Just feel their way through it. Yeah, they grow up doing mechanic work and they just know it. It's just there. I suspect our organic mechanic here is much the same way. He's learning by doing. <laughs> oh, boy. So it's small wonder that he doesn't know a lot about... The female body. Yeah. I was also wondering how much experience he has with the wives themselves. I mean, I, if, if this is a Morton Joe's organic mechanic, I assume that he's met the wives before. He's familiar with them. 
But, you know, they are very clean. I'm sure that's not something he's used to dealing with. Yeah, this is not the first time that the organic mechanic has had to deal with a birth. Like, when it comes to the wives, it's not Miss Giddy who's taking care of them Mm. when it's time for the baby to come. It's the organic mechanic coming in. He's checking them, making sure they're pregnant or not, giving Joe that information. And I think it's kind of a Star Wars situation where the organic mechanic is like one of those little robots and he's like, for all intents and purposes, she's perfectly fine, but we're losing her. <laughs> it's like she's lost the will to live. I'd half expect him to start going, Uba. <laughs> How do you, what's Australian for Uba? Uba. <laughs> <laughs> I also have a question about the organic mechanics place his hierarchy within Joe's society because he when he calls out to joe you know he he refers to one of joe's wives his prize wife as your girly which seems kind of almost flippant and uh, but joe doesn't mind that he or he lets him get away with that and uh so it kind of makes me wonder you know how much pull how much leeway the organic mechanic has it's very interesting that his dynamic with joe it definitely feels to me that his skills offer him that position that if he weren't so freaking useful to Joe that he would never be able to get away with talking the way he does in front of the warlord. But just the fact that he is the organic mechanic. He's not a organic mechanic. First of all, it wouldn't be a, it would be Anne, but that's beside the point. (laughs) There don't seem to be a team of organic mechanics to rush out of the bullpen, surround the person you know, with the power drill sound, and then they just come out fine again. It's one guy <laughs> that's really holding this all together with little bits of his own hair sewing up wounds. Mm-hmm. So I think he's definitely earned the right to say things like that, but he still regards Immortan Joe as the boss. Sure, yeah. Now, as we're in this scene, mm-hmm. how much have you guys discussed the lighting? Because... I'm assuming it's like a day for night thing with the the, yes. the blue hue to everything. Uh, but I like the, uh, I just love the lighting effects that anybody that has a light on them are in either like a sapia or they're, if they're brightly lit, then they have their full colors. Like the uh, Doof Warrior is, his red is really, really showing. Yeah. Uh, I just, I just love, especially when they're in the same scene and you have like the organic mechanic that's actually lit up and then Morton Joe's still kind of back in the shadows. So it's a very nice contrast. And I really like the light that they've got going inside the Giga Horse because it's just so, I guess, large and tubular. It's not an incandescent bulb. It seems to be one of those more hipstery style of bulbs. (laughs) Yes. I would half expect to see something like that mashed into a mason jar hanging over a bar in some sort of place that serves all organic hand minced burgers or something i was like absolutely gonna say a microbrewery <laughs> it looks like yeah yeah that's the word i yeah. couldn't think of it's such a way to divide the scene because a lot of the times we talk about the blue and the dark and the cold being so i guess suffocating and you bring in that warm light and it warms things up a little bit and you feel a bit more comfortable which hey if you've got a pregnant woman who is breathing her last breaths you'd like her to be a little bit more comfortable ideally I find the application interesting in this scene. We talked a lot last week. We saw this situation quite a bit, but it was mostly applied to the wives. The wives had their little lantern sitting in the back seat of the rig. Everything else was in this suffocating blue 
and they were warmed up with this orange light. So seeing it applied here to the organic mechanic, and it really is for him. Yes, Angherd's belly is a bit bathed in the light, but it's not overflowing onto Joe at all. Him being the one that is centered in this light and this warmth is interesting, and I'm, I'm not really sure what to make of that. We did some equating last week of this blue light to violence and cold, and we see that more this week, that things are particularly rough now in this moonlight. The organic mechanic, he's a practitioner of the healing arts, but he does so with violence. So it's a little incongruous. Yeah. Not sure what to make of it. What do you guys think? Um, I hadn't really thought about the color palette in this sequence in regards to the organic mechanic. I It's interesting what you said, Julia. I like it overall in that, you know, this is kind of the halfway point of the movie and it it's, you know, it is, it's separating, um, you know, the two days from each other and it's separating like the, the escaping uh, from this point on. They're pretty much, pretty quickly, they're going to be heading back, you know, spoilers. But so it's kind of, a, a, um, you know, that color separates the movie, bisects the movie into two big chunks. And, and I like it for that reason. I hadn't thought about it in regards to, you know, individual characters and what they look like uh, and how that lighting is, you know, storytelling about individual characters. That's an interesting concept. I guess the, the organic mechanic is the only one, especially in this particular party. He is the only one who's interested in keeping anybody alive. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you do have Miss Giddy there. And she's got a long-standing relationship with the wives, but she's such a non-character in this scene. Like, she's there because they dragged her along, and she's not really played much of a part since that opening scene where she, I guess, almost shot Joe. Yeah. Didn't quite work out. But she wasn't strong enough. Or quick she enough. Was, she was afraid of him. She didn't shoot him when she had the chance. So now she's stuck in this situation. I agree <laughs> that Miss Giddy is an underused character in this scene, I would have liked to see her used a bit more maybe to defend Ang Herod and the treatment that she is about to receive. Yeah, it's interesting because her primary role is that of a teacher, like a governess, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I I love the character and she looks super cool, but yeah, it is kind of odd to me that they decided to take her along because, you know, if they recover the wives, they're not going to have like a lesson on the way back to the citadel you know i i don't know you know and she doesn't have any of the uh knowledge that the organic mechanic has because as you say is the organic mechanic and so i'm a little uh surprised that they would have taken her along i'm glad that they did because as i say i like the character and it's just fun to see her you know in, in any snippets that we do see her in but it seems like a questionable choice yeah when we were originally seeing her getting dragged along in the Giga Horse, we were wondering why. Because you would think she defied the Immortan, and so he would lock her up or throw her off the Citadel or something like that. Yeah, it's one more person to keep an eye on. And the reasoning we thought up was that she's not used to being out in this environment. She's used to breathing the filtered air inside the Harem Dome. And so being out and about like this is torture for her because she's breathing all of this tainted air. Hmm. So they wanted to just really rake her over the coals as a punishment for aiding and abetting in this situation. But here, yeah, she's just hanging out, 
And this is the last scene that we see her in. She doesn't come back after this. Looking dismayed. Yeah, you definitely can tell she wants to say something. Like, the organic mechanic uses his little ear horn thing to listen in to where the baby is. And when Joe's like, cut the baby out, she's like, uh, 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 it's like the <laughs> firefly gif of Nathan Fillion, like, <laughs> yeah. reaching out his hand and then stop pulling it back and trying to point again. If she had the nerve and wasn't sure that she would be shot in the head or something like that, I'm sure she would try to say something. It's just she can't do it. Yeah, I wish she had the nerve. Even if it meant sacrificing her life to stand up for Ang Herod and more stand up for Ang Herod's baby. Well, let's pop outside of the rig because we've got another character rolling up. He comes in about halfway through the minute and it is the bullet farmer who's come from the bullet farm, of course, of course. on his peacemaker. And while the organic mechanic is sharpening up his knife like he's about to carve a steak, the bullet farmer from the bullet farm is more concerned with continuing the chase, with getting these people back so that he can go home. Because I'm sure he had, I don't know, what do you think, like a jigsaw puzzle, maybe a crossword that he was working on? Maybe. Something, he got pulled away. Yeah. Like maybe he had his war boys and they were performing a play and he was right at that climactic scene and then the call came for reinforcement he's, he's like all right nobody move hold those <laughs> positions exactly i'm leaving and then all these war boys are just like frozen in these different poses like i, I guess i guess we can't move like should we should we go do war no he said don't move you gotta stay put okay i guess we'll stay put yeah <laughs> i like how easily he strides up in his his uh tank mobile too that everybody yeah. else is stuck and he's just like vroom hey what's up yeah. <laughs> what are you guys all hanging around for? Yeah. You guys stuck or something? <laughs> well, I guess you're stuck. Uh, yeah, I'll go up ahead. No problem. He has a companion in the tank car with him who's wearing, I guess you would call it a helmet, but it's like a built-in gas mask and it's like all encompassing. Reminds me of what are like the crazy bad guys from Borderlands. Oh, like the psychos. The psychos. Reminds me of the psychos. Hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's got a full head wrap with a big canister in the middle. Yep. These Bullet Town boys. They're very creative. <laughs> they're not quite as consistent as the Citadel War boys, but it's nice that we get to see the different flavors between these three war parties. Okay, so we get all three of these guys in the, you know representing the three towns. Mm-hmm. Is there any explanation as to why they are all involved at this point? Are they just supporting Joe just to get his wives back? Yes, they are here because he asked them to be. So the people eater is someone from Joe's past. They found him out in the wasteland, and he's the one that brought Joe and the bullet farmer. He wasn't from the bullet farm at that point. The people eater brought the two of them to the citadel, and then Joe and the bullet farmer, not single-handedly, but pretty much single-handedly, took the citadel from the people that were occupying it. So those three have a long history. They call themselves brother and boss and all this other stuff. Like, they're intimate partners in their wasteland ventures. It's interesting phrasing. It's very much a World War I situation. Yeah. They are a band of brothers. <laughs> which kind of makes it a World War II situation. But anyway. <laughs> so if the bullet farmer, like, someone takes a gun, he can call the other towns and say, hey, everybody, come on out. Gotta get my guns. Yeah. Like, if... Situations are such that you need three war parties. 
there are two other war parties that you can call in as reinforcements. I think that's one of the bullet farmer's frustrations is that they're going through all of this trouble for something that he doesn't deem worthy. Yeah. And he's got all of this pent up energy. He's yelling about being called to the torture. He wants to go. He wants to shoot. He wants to blow things up. He just can't contain his excitement. He just ah, he wants to go. And I love how Joe's like patience, which honestly, patience sounds like a great name for a Immortan Joe wife. <laughs> if this movie ended a different way and he kept taking wives, that probably would be one of them. But that's what I think of when he shouts out the word. But the bullet farmer fires back with, oh, you stay here with your grief, daddy. I'll fetch him for you. And the people leader's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't shoot them. We know how you like shooting. <laughs> okay. So when he says don't shoot the assets, he's talking about the wives or is he talking about the rig and its contents? I think the people eater is talking about the assets as the wives. Okay. Uh, yeah. It was unclear to me exactly what he meant by that because the people eater, when he was listing out the assets that they've lost, didn't mention any, you know, human beings. Yeah. They're not assets. I think in this case, he's talking about the wives because they're kind of like Joe's property. Yeah, yeah. They're more valuable than just plain old war boys. So these guys support each other. That's admirable, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, But these the wives are Joe's wives, and they are to give him healthy children. I'm not saying that he shares his wife with these other two guys at all, but I'm just wondering, is any part of that process, anything that they have anything to do with, are they only here to support him because he just called them here. I think it's the latter. I think they're not getting anything out of this except maintaining a good relationship with Joe. Sure. Who provides all the water. <laughs> the food, the water, the, food the mother's water. milk. Like, sure, Gastown has gas and probably trades with people outside of the triumvirate. And the bullet farm has bullets. And that's pretty much it. Without a steady stream of water and food and mother's milk from the Citadel, they starve. So you got to stay good with the guy who fills your dinner table, basically. So that's what they're getting out of this. They're getting a continued partnership with the guy who has food and water. <laughs> so it's a partnership, but it's not exactly a completely equal partnership. Like, Immortan Joe is still the Immortan, it seems. Like, if it's a triangle, Joe is at the top peak of that triangle. If it's, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Very much so. But the bullet farmer from the bullet farm is not going to hang around he is going to go and so he reaches into his mouth and he grabs onto something and he pulls and it's a bullet and he puts it into his revolver and all i can think of is like he was using that as a tooth wasn't he <laughs> yeah yeah this is not okay <laughs> like okay the sound effects indicate Rippage. He ripped it out of his mouth. Yeah. So for one, how was it attached in there? And for two, I mean, didn't that hurt like a lot? Everything hurts out here. Okay. If I may, I am a certified dental technician and I specialize in dental implants. Oh, Seriously? Really? Yes. That is incredibly lucky. Yeah. Happy accident. Yeah. This this doesn't work. This doesn't work at all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. What? Thank you. <laughs> That explains why he calls it an angry shot, because he just ripped it out of his head. <laughs> yeah, continue. 
But it wouldn't. It would have to be a pressure fit. You would have to extract a tooth, or I guess you could bore a hole in your jaw with a, some kind of a drill or something. So dental implants are made of endosteel titanium, and titanium has a special biocompatible property that it fuses to the bone, or the bone actually grows around titanium. The bone likes titanium. It's called osteointegration. And so unless they have titanium casings on their bullets, which I very much doubt, there's no way that that bullet is actually attached to the bone. And also the soft and hard tissues are not going to attach themselves to that casing either. So it's a very cool visual, but it's completely bonkers as far as like biomechanics. Yeah, I feel like the danger of lead poisoning is incredibly high because while they probably recycle the round casing... They probably don't metal coat the bullets that they make at the bullet farm. So any sort of ammunition, unless that's like old world ammunition that he just pulled out of a box somewhere. If that's ammunition that they made at the bullet farm and it's just raw lead capped onto a brass casing. Yeah, that's not something you want to put in your gums. No, not at all. And so it's a little ridiculous that he has some natural teeth left because, uh, you know, if that's what he's doing, then all the rest of his natural teeth are going to be rotting out. All his gums are going to be receding pretty quickly. Yeah. (laughs) But again, it looks cool. I also did some research, not definitive research, so I don't really have anything to say about it, but research into like the, you know, how much pressure does a firing pin have? And basically wondering if he could just blow his face off if he bit down too hard on a Jolly Rancher or something. Oh. But I think it has to be pretty specific depending on what bullet you're using. You know, it has to have, I don't know if it's it's a lot of pressure, but you, you have to hit it in the right spot. But I guess if he inserted the bullet upside down in his mouth, so the, you know, uh, so that, that wasn't a, an issue. I don't know. That seems very hurtful to do it that way. The whole bullet in your mouth, pull it out in a special occasion thing just makes me squirm. Makes me squirm about as much as the nipple piercings <laughs> that hold the calculator machine. But this raises an interesting question. You know, you said for special occasions, how often is he, you know, is it every time, does he have like a catchphrase that he uses and every time he does his catchphrase, he has to pull a bullet out to like underline that catchphrase or, you know, is this like the first time he's ever done it? What do we think about that? Oh my gosh, I can imagine him having like that one spot in his mouth. That's just where he keeps extra bullets. And then when he wants to be especially dramatic, he'll just pull out the bullet. And then like when no one's looking, he'll just like slide it back in there. (laughs) (laughs) Joe keeps an organic mechanic kind of on staff because his particular interest is in procreating a perfect heir. So does the bullet farmer with his affinity for dental implants keep a, I'm not clever enough to think of an interesting name, but a dentist. Yeah, that's probably why he's very anxious to get this all over with. He's probably got some kind of a dental appointment. He's got a tissue graft that he needs to get back for. Yeah. He's like, oh my goodness, this bullet is not working. I got to get back (laughs) pronto. Listeners, if you could do me a favor... Find something that rhymes with dentist that is appropriately post-apocalyptic for this movie so that way we can have a name for the fictional character that the bullet farmer has back at the bullet farm that does all the teeth stuff. We got organic mechanic in the Citadel. We need dentist something or something dentist for the bullet farm. That's your homework. I'll tell you what the name can't be. The name of my dentist, which is Gentle Dental. (laughs) Nope, cannot be that. There's no way that that dentist is gentle. You know what? 
I go to a place called Dr. Dental, so it's not that much better. <laughs> well, I doubt that there, his dentist is actually a doctor either. <laughs> My insurance is accepted there. That's why I go. <laughs> I have no dental insurance. I go to the place next to my job. Yep. But that pretty much brings us to the end of the minute. The last thing we see is the bullet farmer from the bullet farm. He yells hut to get the peacemaker going. And then the minute just cuts off before we actually speak. Oh, no, no, see no, them no, speed no. Away. no, no, no. Is it this minute where he does the line one bullet for Furiosa? Yes. Yes. But he pronounces it awesome. He says one bullet for free for Furiosa instead of Furiosa. Wait, do you, uh, does anybody in this movie emphasize the saw? Come on, it's a Harry Potter reference. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Am I the only one that got excited about that? I f- didn't we do that I joke already? Like back in like the second week of the show? Yeah, but he said it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that counts. <laughs> I, I There is one thing about this minute. We already mentioned that the girl is alive and that can be a surprise to you. I did. I was listening very close, and in that scene, in the middle of this minute or so, if you listen very close on the left channel all the way over, you can hear like a couple little gasps of breath from the Splendid. Nice. Really? Yes. Wow. And not like Good she's ears. not like she's conscious, but you know, just kind of like little raspy breaths. And I was like, oh, you wouldn't notice it, obviously, when you're just watching the movie. But I know this might be beyond their technological abilities. But we know that they have oxygen and they use respirator type stuff. Do you think they could keep her artificially alive? For like another month? For like, yeah, for like another month? (laughs) Maybe. Not in this situation, though. No, not in the car. (laughs) Yeah. They'd need to go back to the Citadel for that. Oh, speaking of in the car, I didn't realize until looking very closely at this minute that they're actually in the car. I just assumed Mm -hmm. they were in the back, you know, like in the, the truck bed kind of thing. But no, they're actually like in the in the seats. That's that's very nice of Jove to do that for them. Yeah, the Giga Horse has a lot of really nice interior space. It holds a lot of people, you know, because it's a hot rod stacked on top of another hot rod stacked on top of just the craziest lift kit and engine combination you've ever seen. <laughs> but here at the end of today's episode, David and Jonathan, could you do me a favor and tell the nice listeners where they can hear more of you? Absolutely. You can go to uhf60second.com. That's uhf62nd.com and find everything that we've got there. Hopefully, by the time this airs, you can just go to your podcatcher, whether it's iTunes or whatever, and search for uhf62nd and you'll have some episodes there. Actually, secret, you'll have some episodes anyway. Just maybe, hopefully, more episodes by this time. As for us, we will be coming back on Wednesday. The bullet farmer from the bullet farm is going to go hunting. The organic mechanic is going to get cutting. And Rictus will deliver a somber summation of the situation. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 67 of Fury Road. See you next time. <laughs>